Today I'd like to consider a word, study a word from the scripture that the Savior tells us, if used incorrectly, shall bring you into hellfire. I want to start the passage of our second reading from Matthew 5. Saviour delivered those uh, verses, most quoted sermon of the Bible that we know of the Beatitudes in chapter 5. And then from verse 13, he challenges his listeners with the question of their authenticity as believers. You are the salt of the earth. But if you've lost your soul, wherewith shall it be salted? And then verse 17, he moves on to talk about the eternal nature of the Holy Scriptures. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then verse 19. He questions each person's righteousness. Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then from verse 21, the Saviour begins illustrating the scope, the breadth, and the gravity of the law of God. You've heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not kill. And he shows that simply by using words, as weapons, that you're guilty of breaking this commandment. And he shows the escalating consequences of this misuse of words alone. And in verse 22, shows the final level of the consequences. He declares as hellfire, and the trigger offence, using the word fool against someone. And while I want to spend our time looking at the scripture's use of the word fool, it's very important that we don't skip over those words used by our Saviour, hellfire. Those who are ignorant of the scriptures, those who are lacking in knowledge of our Saviour, like to portray the Lord Jesus as a compassionate carer that we should try and emulate. God is compassion, 
But the Saviour is the foremost herald of the horrors of hell. And you must not forget that it's our loving Saviour who warns us again and again the reality and horror of this eternal place of condemnation called hell. It's a real place. The eternal dwelling place of all who are rejected and condemned by our Creator. It is real. It is eternal. As we say this word, we must take in what that word means, unchanging. It's a place no one will ever want to be. Just occasionally, you might find uh, when a Christian is witnessing to someone and they'll say, well, if my loved one is in hell, that's where I want to be, with them. But that you cannot say that. You say that being ignorant of the horror of hell. The Lord describes it as a place of weeping, of wailing, lamentation, regret, eternal regret. That sort of uh, regret where you have a, a, a pain in your throat because you know you've been so wrong. And this is eternal. And it describes it as outer darkness. It doesn't describe it as darkness. Outer darkness. Such a separation from all that is good and from God. Outer darkness, which declares to us that there's no coming back. You're completely cut off. And it talks about gnashing, grating of teeth, gritting of teeth. Just occasionally, you may have had an experience which is tremendously trying, and you've had to grit your teeth to try and go through it. But hell is eternal. You'll be gritting, gnashing, struggling all eternity. You do not want to be there. You cannot say, if someone else is there, I want to be there with them. Just in these most recent days, we've had uh, that terrible footage, the wildfires and the tragedy in Maui. You could not find one person who would say, I would like to be in there because someone else is there. You would not be enjoying your last moments with the other person. You would be gasping for air as it disappears. You'd be feeling the pain and the horror of the burning. You'd be completely preoccupied with that. Lord Jesus described hellfire. Something that goes on for eternity. You do not want to be there. But my intention is to try and help you to see the 
that you do not want to be there by looking at the use of the word fool through the scripture. The casual casual observer might think, we can't use the word fool. It's all through the scripture. And it does occur frequently. But it is God who uses it. The Lord Jesus uses it. And when God uses it, it's justified. Remember the scripture says in 1 Corinthians that uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And we do not attribute foolishness to God. That verse, the apostle was demonstrating our limited intellect with all the technological gains that we enjoy in our day is still so far, so million miles or kilometers away from the intellect of the perfect divine being. God is justified in his use of the word fool. And I want to, first of all, visit Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Our second scripture reading was Psalm 53. And if you read both these Psalms side by side, you will see that there is some variation, but not a lot. It's the same message. It's not a duplication and error. It's because this is a message we need to hear again and again. When the scripture repeats things, it's saying, pay particular attention to this. In Psalm 14, it begins, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the, the greatest candidate to wear the title of fool is the atheist. Now, I do not expect we would find anyone in this building who would be putting their hand up to say, I'm here as an atheist. If you are, I'm very pleased you're here. And I do hope you will continue to listen to all I say. But truly, atheism is foolishness. Atheism which says there is no creator. There is no God. Because the atheist cannot explain where everything came from. The atheist will try to tell you, to hoodwink you, to brainwash you by saying enough times that everything was always here. Everything came together by complete accident. And they'll say to you, it happened, it was possible because it happened over a very long time. It's a lie. They deny the simplicity of the truth of irreducible complexity. When you look at the creation, so much intricacy. For example, to explain this word, irreducible complexity, that author spoke about 
a mousetrap, could never make itself. It could never make its own component, components. And secondly, it could never put the components together. There would need to be a design. There would need to be a designer. There would need to be a purpose. There would need to be an order. The mousetrap will never, ever, no matter how million, many million of years you ask for, will never put itself together in this world and this universe. And especially each one of you is so much more complex than a mousetrap. Some people, some people are atheists, but they wear another title and they say, I don't know if there is a God. Sometimes they call themselves agnostics. And we see them even here. The fool has said in his heart. And maybe, maybe you're not someone who outwardly declares that you're an atheist, but in your heart secretly you're trying to live as though there is no God and you have to ask yourself why why are you trying to deny all the evidence of creation around you you must be true you must see that there is a creator Look at verse 2. The Lord God looked down from heaven. Not only is there a creator, there is a creator who sees everything. Who sees all that you do. Who sees even your very thoughts. And when he looks, he sees that there is none to understand and seek God. In fact, verse 3 tells us, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth God good. No, not one. And remember, this is repeated again in Psalm 53. And this is a repeated again the Apostle writes in Romans, there is none, no, not one. And we have to see that atheism, denying your creator, will lead you into wickedness, will lead you to deny God's standards, God's ways, which are all good, which are all right. And we live in an age when in society, atheism prevails. And what do we see, the fruit of the society? In our age, this new speak, when things which are bad and evil and harmful are described as good, and those that challenge them are described as bad, this is the wicked fruit of atheism. And this is what God calls being a fool. 
I want to take you forward now in the New Testament to Luke 11. Luke 11 and verse 40. This verse is from a passage when there's a Pharisee and the Lord gives a commentary on the Pharisees and describes them as fools because they're all about the outward. And we have to be very careful. There are friends who foolishly are preoccupied only with the outward. They think that religion is simply maintaining an outward form. But the Lord God says, no, what's important is the heart. What's important is inside. And God knows all your heart. When we look at the Ten Commandments, we see that they deal not only with our actions, thou shalt not kill, but our words. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not bear false witness. We transgress God's law with our words. And we break God's laws with our thoughts. Thou shalt not covet. There is no action there. Yes, actions spring from covetousness. But they begin, the sin is named is captured by the Lord God, by our thoughts within our heart. So outward religion is completely empty. Self-righteousness is useless and foolish. So atheism, foolishness, outward religion, foolishness. Let us turn forward to Luke 24. And the account which begins at verse 13 and culminates in the verse 25 where we see the full word where the Lord Jesus met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he describes these disciples, these followers of the Lord, as fools. These were friends who followed the Lord. These were friends who were taken up with the Lord. But the Lord calls them fools because they haven't understood who the Lord Jesus Christ is or his purpose, his mission. And we see from verse 25, he says, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And friends can have a conviction of sin. They can realize that before God, there is a problem. And that is good. 
That is encouraging. And you must thank God for that. But that is not enough. Because you mustn't try then to make yourself right with God. Not like a Pharisee who thinks he's fine on the inside. You know there's something wrong. But you need to understand that there is only one remedy for your problem. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is his dying in your place for your own sin. His rising from the grave because he has done everything for you. And he calls you simply to trust in his finished work. Do you lack that understanding? Do you understand what the Lord has done for you? 32 years ago, this was my case. I was aware of my sin. I was aware of my problem before God. But in my heart, I was still holding on. I was still the God of my own life. I was still wanting to hold on to one or two sins. But then God showed me that I wasn't in control of my life. And graciously, he enabled me to yield myself entirely upon him. And then, then I understood it was not up to me. It was not my actions that would save me. I trusted in the Lord Jesus as my savior to have taken my sins. Then I understood. And then I had assurance. And I knew he was his. Suffer me, just want to do three more passages really quickly. Don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 36, the Apostle Paul uses the word fools when he's talking about matters of eternity for the believer. And the Apostle was saying, the Lord has prepared something which is far better than anything in this life, far more glorious. And if you're somehow trying to hold on to something in this life because you think it's particularly precious to you, understand that for the Lord's people, there is a glory which no one can describe because of its excellence. Then, still in Luke, in chapter 12, we have uh, the parable of the rich farmer. In the context, the Lord is talking about, in verse 15, not being satisfied with just the things of this life. And the rich farmer had that bountiful harvest he sits back and says, I'll make plans because everything is going very well for me now. But in verse 20 of that 
12th chapter, we see God says to him, Thou fool, this night, this night, thy soul is required of thee. You do not know when you shall have to face God. It may be imminent. It may be years away. You do not know. But you will be a fool if you keep delaying. If you keep thinking, I just want to enjoy a few more years of what this world can offer me. I just want to experiment a little bit more. How dreadful. All eternity you're gnashing and wailing you're realizing I played the fool God called me I knew but I had not acted so let us go back to Matthew 5 sorry Matthew 7 go back to the Sermon on the Mount and right at the end and here in verse 26, the Lord talk, talks about a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. You hear, you hear the gospel, but you keep on building your life on sand. There is a storm coming. There's storms in life. And then there's that truly catastrophic storm of death. We will all face death. We will all one day face God. Why? Why are you building your life on sand that will collapse? Great will be the fall of it. Why? Please, please, friends, do not be fools. Do not be affected by the atheism of this world. Do not be contaminated by the wickedness of Self-righteousness is wickedness. And just being concerned about outward religion. Do not be found foolish because you haven't seen what the Savior has done. Coming from heaven to save you. He's willing to save you. He came to save you. Have confidence. Go to him. Confess your sin. He has promised to receive every single person who comes to him. Do not be the fool. Be wise. And build your house upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And enjoy this life, eternal life, now and for all eternity. Amen.